A good haircut can be a game changer. I mean, everybody wants to look their best for those social media pics, right? So get yourself to Sport Clips at Sport Clips Haircuts. They hair do like no one else hair does. See what they did there? Not only is it the home of champion haircuts, but they've also made relaxing and unwinding the name of the game. Level up your haircut with the MVP haircut experience. It's a spa day for your follicles. Check this out. You get a seven pressure point massaging shampoo along with a perfectly steamed hot towel all while sports plays on the TV. Does it get any better than that? No. You can want it all and have it all at Sport Clips. It's a game changer. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The following program is a PodcastOne.com production. He's a world champion wrestler, best-selling author, actor, and lead singer of Fozzy. Now, now he's rocking the podcast world. This, this, this is Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho. Starring Chris Jericho. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. The part of thunder and rock and roll. Spill your under has been broken by Chris Jericho. And guess what? It's Friday. It's The remedy for boredom has arrived. Hey, the People's ladies. Podcast is here. Let's go for a ride. Bounce, 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 bounce. Hey, ladies, bounce, bounce. Hey, ladies! Hey, ladies! Oh, my goodness. I can't believe you guys still listen to this show. But I know why you listen to this show because for the first time ever, I've got Sabu. On a podcast, any podcast, search the net, you will not find Sabu doing a podcast. As a matter of fact, he's hardly done any interviews at all. Never known for his talking skills, but I tracked him down. I've known Sabu since 1991, since we uh, did a tour together of FMW back when I was 20 years old. Oh my gosh, it's a long time ago, but long time friend, mutual respect, and simply uh, I, I went to RVD, I got Sabu's number. And I text Sabu, and he said, I'd love to do your podcast. Let's make it happen. And we did. Much respect to Sabu for doing this. Uh, it's kind of a, a coming out from behind the curtain for, uh, for, for the Sabster. It's his first ever podcast appearance and one of the few interviews he's ever done. Uh, really excited to, to connect with him. We talk about his uncle, the Sheik, how he was so influenced by the legendary, uh, legendary Sheik. Uh, he got Sabu interested in wrestling and eventually trained him. Uh, if you're wondering how Smash 
smashing through tables became a regular thing in the ring. Sabu is the reason via advice from the Sheik. Sabu is a pioneer. He's a legend. He's an innovator. Now, he got a lot of flack for it back in the early 90s for going through tables. I'm sure if you can remember how uh, avant-garde and how revolutionary that was. He also uh, had some crazy brawls over the years. He's going to tell you the story about his barbed wire match with Terry Funk. We got 45 minutes with the homicidal, suicidal, genocidal Sabu on the way. You don't want to miss it. That's why you're here. I want to thank you guys for being here. I want to thank you guys for doing your online shopping through my Amazon links at podcastone.com as well. It's the easiest way to support this show. Amazon is a proud sponsor of Talk is Jericho. And every time you shop at Amazon through one of my links, Amazon gives a small percentage of your purchase back to the show to help us cover production costs. Now listen, I got links for Amazon USA, Amazon UK, and Amazon Canada, A, Just go to podcastone.com, click on the Keep Our Podcasts free banner at the top of the page, then hit the Talk Is Jericho button. You can get all kinds of cool stuff on Amazon, like for instance, the new Fozzie record, Do You Want to Start a War? You can get the new Slipknot record, Five, The Grey Chapter, uh, just came out on Tuesday. Corey Taylor, the singer of Slipknot, a good friend of mine, of course, appearing on the show uh, uh, last episode. Also, uh, I'm the Man. The story of that guy from Anthrax, the Scott Ian book. So many great books. Or you can get my book, The Best in the World, at what? I have no idea. I've been on the road touring, doing all the press, doing all the signings. Thanks to all of you who came out to hang with me on this tour, on this signing tour. Uh, Signed thousands of books for you guys, and I appreciate that. we got one more signing on Saturday in Tampa, where I live, at the Carrollwood Barnes & Noble. That's at 2 p.m. That's a matinee signing. Come on down and help me wrap up this, uh, this tour at the highest level, at the highest degree. H- had an amazing time. If you haven't checked out the book yet, what are you waiting for? A lot of people are saying this is the best of the trilogy of the Chris Jericho books. Great to hear. If you like the first two, you'll love this one. If you haven't read the first two, doesn't matter. You're going to love this one anyways. As a matter of fact, I'm going to read a chapter, another chapter, uh, later on in this show. But you can buy this book. You can buy the record. You can buy anything you want. It's Amazon. They've got everything available. You want a couch? You can get a couch. You want tires? You get tires. You want jewelry? You can get that as well. Anything you want at Amazon. And if you go through my link, there's no hidden fees or hidden charges. If you're doing some Amazon shopping, you can just help out my show and me in the process. Once again, go to podcastone.com, click on the Keep Our Podcasts Free banner at the top of the page, then hit the Talk is Jericho button, bookmark it as well, so you can get those links in one easy click. All right, don't forget, got to do the uh, plugs right now. I'll be back in the WWE for one week in November in the UK and in Germany. That's uh, Bournemouth. On the 10th, Liverpool on the 11th, I'll be doing a signing at the Waterstone in Liverpool at noon on the 11th. Um, also, the 12th is Newcastle, 13th Glasgow, 14th Braunschweig, Germany, 15th Frankfurt. So I will be back for only six shows. I will not be on Raw or SmackDown uh, on, the, on the days after that. So please don't expect it. But I will be back in the UK and Germany doing it just for you guys uh, on that European tour. Then after that, the Cinderblock Party Tour starts with Texas Hippie Coalition and Shaman's Harvest, November 20th in Flint, Michigan. Go all the way to December 12th in Tampa at the State Theater. FozzyRock.com for all dates. And then coming back to the UK in March, kicking it off March 3rd in Belfast. Ireland, taking it all the way through Ireland, England, Scotland. Once again, FozzyRock.com for 
all ticket information and all VIP information. All right. Now, we've had a lot of uh, people asking me over the last few months, weeks, uh, where has Egypt been? Apparently, uh, Egypt, the uh, janitor who stopped Pummel Mania way back in 1987. We made friends. We uh, combined forces and were doing pay-per-view predictions. When I went back to the WWE this, this summer, he was nowhere to be found. I could not find him. Tried to get him for predictions. Never could. Um Egypt actually reached out and contacted me. He, he, uh, he apparently had just come back from some kind of a soul-searching type of a thing, and he's on the show with me again, in person, face-to-face. Please give a round of applause to the returning hero, Egypt is back. Egypt, how in the hell are you, man? Jericho. It is so happy for me to be back on Tokus Jericho. I have been gone for many months, trying to find my way across the world to find out who I really am as a human. So you've been traveling the globe to find yourself, Egypt? Yes, that is what I've been doing. I have searched the world to find a heart of gold. I have searched the world to find a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I have searched the world to find my ack, eek, ack, smile. I had lost my smile, Jericho, but now I have found my smile. Okay, Egypt, well, well, how did you find your smile? I mean, what exactly have you been doing uh, over the past three or four months? Jericho, I have harnessed my she. I have searched the world for the love of my life. And I have found her. I searched the globe. I searched the Canada. I searched the USA. And finally, in the find Sheboygan, Wisconsin, I found the love of my life. Oh, you, you've fallen in love, Egypt. Yes, I found her at the Applebee. Applebee? Applebee's. She serves me my cob salad. She was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen in my life, Jericho. Wow, congratulations that you fell in love, Egypt. Uh, uh, did you, have you moved in together or? No, we are taking things very slow. One step at a time. But it is very hard to arrange their plane ticket from Sheboygan to wherever you are filming your show, wherever you are recording your show, wherever you are producing your show, because you are always on the road. So finally, I use my frequent freeware point to come join you in Dallas today. Well, uh, Egypt, I, I don't know what to say. I'm, I'm happy that you uh, used your frequent flyer points. I want to be reimbursed, Jericho. It was $532.15. I expect that to be tacked on to my check next time. Well, of course, Egypt. You know we pay you thousands to be on the show. Uh, let's get to the predictions here. What, what the people want to hear. Uh, Hell in the Cell is on Saturday, tomorrow. 
and we want to know the predictions. Uh, first of all, uh, just announced on SmackDown this week, Cesaro versus Dolph Ziggler in a two out of three fall match. I think that Ziggler will retain in three falls. How about you, um, Egypt? It is the time for Cesaro to make his mark in the WWE. His push has been stopped and started so many times, as has Dolph Ziggler. But it is time to finally give Suezaro the shove to victory. I say Suezaro wins in two falls straight. Are you thinking Cesaro is going to win in two falls straight? Yes, two falls straight. Okay, uh, I'm taking Ziggler, you're taking Cesaro. Next, we have the uh, WWE Divas Championship, AJ Lee versus Paige. I think Paige is going to uh, win the championship and regain... Uh, the Divas title that she's lost to AJ Lee. Uh, how about you, um, Egypt? I agree with you. I think that AJ Lee has big heat because she is their wife. The shoot wife of Slam Punk. I think there is much heat amongst the WWE cognoscenti about the E, about the E, about the Slam Punk. I give it to Page. Okay, WWE Tag Team Champions, Goldust and Stardust versus the Usos. Who do you think is going to win? I think that the Goldust and the Stardust will shall win. I listen to them on Twerk is Jericho. I enjoy the show. I enjoy the Goldust. I enjoy the Golden Rose, the Stardust. Okay, uh, I'm going to agree with you. I think Goldust and Stardust uh, will win the match. Big Show and Rusev. Ah, most definitely that uh, Rusev will suffer his first loss to to the Big Show. The Big Show is too big. The Big Show is too smart. The Big Show is too wily. He is the veteran. He's finally going to get his hands on Rusev and get the win with the Big Schwarzlim. Okay, I'm going to go with uh, Rusev. I think Rusev's undefeated streak, uh, unpinned, unsubmitted streak will continue. I think they're building him up for bigger and better things. Uh, maybe even Kurt Angle, if he comes back. Do you really think that Kurt Angle will come back to the WWE? Well, you never know. I mean, anything's possible. And it would be perfect, you know, to build up the big foreign heel to, to be vanquished by the U.S. hero. All right, United States Championships, Sheamus versus The Miz. I think Sheamus will retain. I agree. I think Shamuels will retain, but I see a little bit of a split between Miz and Miz Dow. I think Miz Dow will break free and become a big star. Okay. Uh, Brie Bella versus Nikki Bella. Man, I mean, uh, this ma- this feud has been going on forever. Uh, the loser must become the winner's personal assistant for 30 days. Well, it has to be Nikki Bella. There's nothing worse than when the good guy, the baby affairs, as we say in their business, wins the services of the heel, because then the heel just looks stupid. It's more better if the heel gets the services of the baby affairs. At this point, Nikki can make B, can make B looks very stupid. I am going for Nikki Bella. Uh, yeah, I, I think that I agree with what you're saying, but I would like to see the different dynamic. I want to see Brie win. Uh, talk is, is Jericho alumni. I want to see her win and get the services of her sister. So I'm going for Brie Bella. You stupid. You are always wrong. Hey, calm down. Calm down. 
No need to yell at me. Okay, we get to the semi-main events. Hell in a Cell, Dean Ambrose versus Seth Rollins. Uh, I think it's Ambrose's time. I mentioned this on my Tweet Secret uh, report a couple days ago. I think Ambrose has the X Factor. I think Ambrose is ready to go to the next level. I'm going to give it to Ambrose. Well, I think that Seth Rollins is a much better choice for that. I think Seth Rollins will win the match and then get ready to cash in the championship on Brooklyn now at the Survivor Series or maybe the Royal Rumble. I'm going for Rollins. Okay, then John Cena versus Randy Orton, seemingly the you know thousandth match that they've had. Uh, but the difference is this is a hell in the cell, and the winner gets... Uh, a, a match against Brock Lesnar. And I'm going to go for Juan Cena. Juan Cena, the ladies love. Juan Cena, the janitors love. Juan Cena, the kids love. Juan Cena, Juan Cena, Juan Cena, I love. All right, I'm going to go on a limb here. I'm going to say that Randy Orton is going to win. I think with these viral videos, if you haven't seen it, go Google it, where Orton is, uh, this little cartoon Orton is... Uh, RKOing got people out of nowhere. It's kind of getting them over as a babyface. And I, we've seen Cena versus uh, Lesnar so many times. I'd like to see Orton versus Lesnar. So I'm going to go out on the limb and say that Orton's going to get another major push. He's going to beat Cena, and he's going to go up against Orton. That's what I think. All right, Jericho. We shall see who's better. Every time I beat you, every time on the Twitter, people say, oh, Egypt has beat Jericho once again. Every time I win, you lose. All right, Egypt. Well, we shall see. It's always great to have you back, and uh, we'll find out what happens. We will go over the predictions next week on this very show. All right, Sabu, just minutes away. The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Talk is talk is talk is Jericho. All right, on the line right now with me, it's the homicidal, genocidal, suicidal, human highlight reel. Sabu is here. What's up, man? Not much. What's going on? It's good to hear from you. You got a lot of nicknames. Not by choice. (laughs) I'll tell you what, man. It's really good to talk to you. Uh, When I started doing this show a few months ago, I put together a list of names that I wanted to try and uh, have on the show, and I, I put your name. I was like, oh, Sabu, man, I haven't talked to you in so long, and and right. you know, it'd be great to to kind of shoot the breeze and hang out. How's it been going, man? How you been doing? I've been doing pretty good. Just just got off uh, like a four country tour just a few days ago. So is that kind of uh, you do a lot of of shows overseas now? Is that kind of uh, your main place? Uh, do you do a lot of stuff in the states still too now? Yeah, I still do a lot in the States, but my bread and butter is overseas. Really? Yeah. It's, it's interesting how uh, still overseas, they, they love uh, kind of American-style wrestling. They love seeing a guy like yourself. Uh, what's your favorite countries that, that you work in still over there? Well, of course, Japan. And yeah. And uh, I guess second would be, uh, uh, I, I like Scotland. Scotland's pretty cool. 
Yeah, the Scots are always crazy, right? No matter what it's for, yeah. whether it's wrestling or, or yeah. rock and roll, they're always a, a great crowd. Um, yeah, they're nuts. Now, you mentioned Japan, and that's kind of where, where you started um, your whole right. career, basically. Uh, you've you've become almost a, um, a, you know, a legendary figure in, in Japan. What was it that attracted the Japanese to your style of wrestling, in your opinion? I don't know exactly, other than... When I was in the States, I wasn't allowed to do uh, my most my, my uh, original stuff, my unique stuff. Mm-hmm. And when I went to Japan, they said, uh, let's see what you got. So I gave it with no holds barred. So I gave them, showed them what I had, and uh, they went nuts for it. Now, now, what do you mean when you said when you first started you weren't allowed to do... Um, I mean, let's, let's, let's go, let's go to, the, to the start of your career. Where were you working where they weren't allowing you to do what you wanted to do? Well, I started out in Michigan, and you know, when you're a first match guy, uh, you weren't you weren't allowed to jump up the top rope, mm-hmm. or shoot to the rope. You know, mostly headlocks and arm drags and stuff like that. But I always had them. I was always practicing, practicing them and practice, but never got to show them off the the crazier stuff, not crazier stuff, but the more unique stuff. Yeah, because you're talking about you know the late '80s, early '90s. Uh, the stuff that's kind of commonplace now is stuff that you basically, in a lot of ways, created and were the only guy really doing it, using you know the chairs to jump onto the ropes and going through tables and all that sort of stuff. Where did you start coming up with the ideas to, to doing all these kind of really revolutionary style of moves that no one had ever really seen before? Uh, it, it just came off the cuff. Uh, yeah. One day, uh, I got beat, and, Uncle, and he was mad at me because I didn't have a good match. And he said, get back out there and get your heat. And I go, how? He goes, think of something. I said, how about a moose on the table? He goes, what's that? I go, I'll show you. So I threw a table in the ring and then moose out to the table and people went nuts. And then, you know, took off from there. Now, you're talking about your uncle who's the Sheik, the original Sheik. Um, yes. Did you grow up w- with him um, kind of as your mentor? Did he train you when you got into the business? Oh, oh yes, yeah. I, I didn't grow up with him. We've seen him every Sunday. You know, he had his own family, and I lived with my mother. Um, my mother and him were brother and sister. Okay. And uh, so, but we always visited him every Sunday. Uh, so uh, he was more of a father to me than I thought my my real father, because I don't even know my real father. I know who he is, but I never see him. Right, right. Uh, right. But um, uh, he he didn't start training me until after I had five years of amateur. Okay. Uh, was that his rule? Yes. Oh really? So he wanted you to to do go through the amateur ranks first. What was that as a discipline disciplinary thing to see if you had what it well, took? Uh, that and be able to uh, defend myself. Oh okay, gotcha. Because you've always had that element too as as a wrestler. I mean, that's kind of the forgotten side of Sabu. Unless you've been in the ring with you, you always kind of start your match with a lot of different chain wrestling and holds and that sort of a thing as right. well. Yeah, but most people overlook that and they just want to see the crash and smash. But they <laughs> overlook that part, but I don't. Well, it's it's like a good it's like stairway to heaven. You got to build your way up to the crash and smash, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> so when you were training, when you finally did your five years of amateur and got in the ring with the Sheik, I mean, this was kind of a different world. Did he try and kayfabe you and 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 lead you through? Or did you? Oh did, yeah. How well, he kayfabe me? He kayfabe me for my first. I started training with him when I was nineteen. I had my first match when I was twenty one. When I was twenty, when I was twenty one. But he kayfabe me up until I was twenty one. But I kind of knew what was going on, but not from him. He never yeah. told you, like, you know, the, the guy's going to be told who's winning and the guy's going to be told right. who's losing. So, so, right. Never that. Was he in the ring training with you, or was he kind of getting too old yeah. at that point? 
No, no, he was in the ring training with me. He wasn't doing the flipping and flapping stuff. <laughs> Obviously. He was in there with <laughs> the headlocks and the, you know, the arm drags, the hammer locks, all that stuff. I learned all from him. And then eventually we got a guinea pig then, uh, or a punching bag. And then I learned he'd stand outside the ring and I'd punch the bag, you know, mm-hmm. or the guinea pig. Were you always thinking of of kind of more of these uh, fantastic moves, like you know, like I said, like when you first started using a chair in the ring and all that sort of stuff? Were you always yeah, thinking of doing stuff yeah. like that? Yeah, I was always dreaming it and, and trying to figure a way to get it in without pissing anybody off. So I always had it in me for you know before I did it. You know, I was always mm-hmm. dreaming of it. And then when uh, I went to FMW in 1992, I think it was or 91. Um, uh, they took the seat you got, and I said, okay, because they were all using chairs, but I tried to use it a little bit different, and, uh, you know, whatever they did, I tried to, use, tried to be different. Right, yeah. right, right. Well, and, and the thing was, too, is that FMW was, I mean, it was kind of tailor-made for, for that style for you to be different, because they were doing, everything was different. I mean, they were having, you know, judo versus uh, versus boxing, or they'd have the barbed wire death matches, or no rules matches, no rope matches. And then when you kind of came in there, it was, it was an open playground for you. Right, right. You know, it's perfectly. who did you have your first match against? Do you remember? Yeah, Horace Boulder. It was me and the Sheik versus Horace Boulder and Mark Starr. Now, was that your first match ever or your first match in Japan? No, first match in Japan. How about your first match ever? Uh, the first match ever was against the Canadian Road Warrior. The Canadian Road Warrior. Yeah, nice. That, that, was, that, was, that was March 1985. Oh wow! And were you were you always Sabu, or did you have another name at first? No, I had another name, um, uh, <laughs> Terry Sr. And uh, I don't know what Sr. meant. He never told me. Oh, she gave you the name Terry Sr. Yeah. <laughs> now was he it, never told me what it meant. T- we're not sure. We're not sure. Uh, uh, sexy rapscallion, maybe, or something, uh... or revenge, or <laughs> okay, there you I go. I like Terry, sexy rapscallion. That's uh, that's what we're gonna say, man. <laughs> where did Sabu? Where did Sabu come from? See, my uncle's idol when he was growing up was the actor Sabu oh. from the Jungle Book. Yeah, and so and he always used to put a towel on his head and jump around and all that. And so my my first Sabu name was Sabu the Elephant Boy, but nobody wow. really got it. But people don't understand. Uh, elephant Boy is like a cowboy, but one who herds elephants. Oh. But in India, I've been I'm like a cowboy. Here, I'm a I'm a elephant man. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's like you're some kind dude. of a some kind of a mutant with a messed up face or whatever, right? Right, right. <laughs> okay, Sabu the elephant boy. I didn't know that. So you, I, I didn't I, I didn't really dig it, but uh, he did, and then nobody else dug it either. So we just <laughs> dropped off the elephant boy. How was the sheik? Was he uh, a pretty surly guy? Was he a nice guy? Was he stubborn? I mean, how was he as a as a, as a guy? He was a, the the nicest man in the world. He was the the meanest man in the world, and the the most generous man in the world. Now, when you're saying he was the meanest man in the world, was that more of a work when he was playing a character, or as his actual no, personality? No, no. when when uh, he blew his top, he blew his top, and he didn't care mm-hmm. was in the way. But when he was nice, he was you know he was nice, you know, super nice. Yeah, gotcha. And over and overly generous. Now, you know, it's interesting because, you know, throughout your career, you've had a real stubborn side to you in certain ways and also a real, um, like you said, when, when he told you to go out there and get your heat back and you went out there and moonsaulted a table, you had a real uh, 
it's not even an attitude. I guess it's a fighting spirit or, or whatever it was. It, it seemed like that kind of came directly from the Sheik. Like he taught you to stand up for what you believe is right and, and don't don't change your beliefs for anybody. Is that is that is that correct? Yeah. He, he told me to stay on my path no matter when when a time comes when I can call my shot to stay on my path. Don't go one way or the other if I if I, if I disagree with it. You know, yeah. if, 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 I have, if I have a vision of a path, stay on it. Mm-hmm. Now, when you first broke that table, was that in uh, in the States or was that in, in Japan when you did that? It was it was in Japan. Okay. So had you ever seen anybody go through a table before? Not like that. Um, you know, power drivers and yeah. uh, hit throw tables at each other and, and, you know, slap their heads on it and stuff like that, but, but not like the way I did it, no. Because those Japanese tables, too, like for people that, that don't know, and why would you if you haven't been there, they're thick. They're like, they're not like yeah. the, the, the church bake sale tables that you have nowadays. They're thick tables, almost like uh, tables that you'd find in a, in a university or something. Did you break yeah, it right away? Yeah, I, I went right through it. <laughs> but, uh, many of them after that, I didn't. I bounced off many of them. But the very first one, I went right through it. Which was lucky. Had you bounced off, you might have changed your mind because those things hurt. <laughs> right. <laughs> You're right. Now, did, did you get uh, – I mean, it, it's interesting because we're talking to you about what you were doing back, like you said, in 91 or 92. And and nowadays, it's, it's commonplace. Guys go through tables all the time. But I always say this, that you were the first – I mean, like you said, there was a couple other guys here and there. I know Terry Funk had gone through one once, et cetera. But as far as guys going through tables in the course of the match – you were the pioneer. You were the first guy that ever started doing this. Uh, now, as every other pioneer, did you get a lot of flack at first for doing that? Yeah, because they said that it wasn't wrestling. But see, I, I tried to incorporate it, and make it wrestling by using the ringside bell keepers, a ring announcer's table, not pulling one out from uh, under the ring. You understand? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now you got to pull it out from under the ring. But it used to be a bell keeper, timekeeper, and a ring announcer sitting at ringside with a table. And I, that's how I got that. Uh, that's how I use the table. You know. W- would you bring it in the ring? Uh, at first, no. Because uh, later on, they kind of forced me to. Uh, promoters did so everybody could see it. Now, what was the reaction of the Japanese fans the first time you did that? Oh, they went nuts! It was crazy, unbelievable. Wow, because like they had never seen anything like that before, right? Right. You're right. And and how did you talking about FMW? I mean, it was it was such a kind of lightning in a bottle because Onita was so popular and then he incorporated, he had a lot of the other giants like Mike Bo- uh, Mike, Mike Gladiator and Horace Boulder and he had you as kind of like the foreign attraction. That was a really, really popular promotion in the early 90s. Right. I mean, based, I mean, how over was Onita as a babyface? Super over. I mean, he still is. He still is? Yeah, people used to cry when he, when he wrestled. Yeah, when he was done his match, he would pour water over his head and he would cry about I don't what was right. I don't know why he was crying I guess because he was so uh happy that the fans were on his side or something like that Yeah, I guess so, yeah. <laughs> Did you ever work against him? Yeah, uh, I had one single match with him and of course he beat me and I had uh, many tag matches against him. Did you ever have kind of uh, the barbed wire matches or any of the explosive matches that they were getting into? No, no no explosions, just a few barbed wires. How was that? I mean, how, were they, was it was it legit or were they kind of gimmicked a little bit? The barbed wire. Oh no, there, there was no gimmick to the barbed wire, not at all. So what? 
I mean, what did you think when they first said, okay, you're having a barbed wire match and he's just going to throw you in there? Just whatever? Or, or, uh, actually, I, I was happy about it. I said, sweet. You know, uh, I'm going to tear this place up. But So I went crazy and uh, on my first one, thinking I'll probably never see another one for years. And then the next tour, I had two of them. Then the following tour, I had like three of them. The following tour, I had like 15 of them. <laughs> then, it, then it started getting out of hand. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the Japanese way, right? Once you uh, once yeah. you do it once, then suddenly every night you're booked in a barbed wire match. In the in the outskirts of of of, of Tokyo, too, you're not even like you're like in the Omazawa or something like that, where there's like right. 500 farmers there. Yeah, because I, I would go to the booker and say, why am I in a barbed wire match every night? They go, you love barbed wire. I said, no, I don't. I just try hard. <laughs> yes. You know, just say climb a mountain, I'll, I'll climb that mountain the best I can. No, I mean, I want to. Yeah. I like to. Yeah, especially if the mountain's made of barbed wire. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so tell us, I mean, the early days of ECW, You once again, you were, you were one of the, the first really top stars uh, in this company that, that, that had this huge reputation as being kind of an outlaw organization. How did you get hooked up with ECW in the first place? This guy, Dennis Corluzzo, uh, had, a, had a company in New Jersey. He said, uh, call Todd Gordon. He's a sucker. You can get 500 bucks out of him. So I said, all right, I'll call him. I said, hey, Todd Gordon, this is Sabu, and he kind of jacked off. And then I, I was afraid to ask for 500. I asked for 300. And he said, yeah, come on in. And then it took off from there. Isn't it funny, like, when you think about that? I remember the first time I ever sat in Eric Bischoff's office, and uh, he said, well, what do you want? And I was like, I'd been making okay money in Japan, maybe 50 or 60 grand a year because I was going every month. And I remember saying to Bischoff, you know, I can't come in for, for less than $100,000. And I was just like mortified that I actually said that word. And he's like, I'll, right. give you, I'll give you 130. And meanwhile, everyone else was making like 250 or 400 or 500. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like you said, yeah. you're too scared to ask for 500 bucks. So you asked for 300, right? Yeah. <laughs> Now, yeah. what, what was ECW like when you first came in there? I mean, you were one of the guys that really built that company up. Yeah, I, I'd never heard of them at the time. It was just another booking, you know, I, I never heard of them. And uh, Paulie called me a couple days uh, before that and uh, wanted me to do a company, uh, come in for a company before that, a different company, mm-hmm. uh, WWN, World Wrestling Network. So he happened to be his first day and my first day, and he even said to me, what are you doing here? Wasn't like Polly put me in. Todd Gordon booked me, and it happened to be Polly's first day and my first day. Polly's first day as the booker. Uh, yes. Gotcha. Well, that's when yeah. I kind of started taking off. I mean, I remember I was working, you know, quite exclusively in Japan at the time, and all you would ever see in every Japanese magazine, whether it was Gong or Baseball or Tokyo Sports, there would always be a big ECW section. I mean, ECW was, had a big reputation. Um, right off the bat, for being like I said, this this revolutionary organization. How was it for you working there? Was it just another gig, or, or did you buy into the us versus them mentality? Yeah, it was just another gig. But after a few years, I got to love it. You know, right, right. Now, what was it that you loved about it? Uh, I got to be myself. Yeah, I had, uh, there was no restrictions. I couldn't do wrong. You know, there's basically no rules in ECW in a lot of ways. Yeah, and it was the first company I ever worked in. Or it was okay to hurt your opponent. Now I'm not saying I wanted to hurt my opponent, but it, but if you knocked someone's tooth out, you didn't get reprimanded. You got you got a pat on the back, and that's where uh, the other guys confuse my work with with their bad work. Yeah, their bad work would be killing each other, and my work wouldn't be. Mm-hmm. You know, well, it was definitely a, what we say. You know, in the business, it was it was a stiffer type of a of a, of a company. But like you said, if you did throw some hands and hit some soup bones, you wouldn't really get in trouble for it. Uh, and you but know, 
but I was I wasn't overly stiff. The other guys were. They, they were just mimicking me. They, they, I was overly stiff. I, it's called working. I, I knew how to work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and you got you paid the price too. I mean, you broke your neck a couple times in ECW. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was. Uh, I mean, one time was with right. with Benoit, and the other time was with Taz. Right, legitimately. Uh, no, that one was Candido. Candido, gotcha. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was one of the famous bumps with when, with with the Benoit thing, where he th- was throwing you up, and you went to take one bump, and he was trying to give you another yeah. bump. I mean, it was it's it's an ugly, ugly, uh, uh, ugly looking piece of video if you've ever seen it. Did it take yeah. you? Did did is that something that still affects you to this day, or did it go away after a while? No, I still got neck problems, and my uh, right thumb doesn't work. I got nerve damage from that from that bump. Yeah. How long were you out at that time? Well, um, I, I I was out for two weeks only because I didn't have no matches, and then I did, after two weeks I did a five week tour of Japan. Gotcha. Was that still with FMW or were you with New Japan at that uh, point? Four weeks, four weeks FMW. Then I jumped over to New Japan for one week. How was that when you jumped over? Tell us the the kind of behind the scenes machinations of because I know in Japan a lot of guys did jump, but it was always kind of orchestrated as a secret kind of a you know under the under the covers type of a vibe. Uh, everybody knew it. Everybody in the company knew it. And uh, uh, it's just that when the FNW finished, they drove me over to New Japan's uh, hotel, which is Cape Plaza, and uh, and they took over from there. Okay, so it wasn't like a secret you told Onita that you were leaving? No, it wasn't a secret. I told him ahead of time. Gotcha. Well, because New Japan was the was was the big leagues. I mean, FMW had yeah. their had their moments, but it was still the number three or number four promotion in the country at the time. Right. How was it working with New Japan? How did they take it? Because they're more of a traditional style wrestling organization. Well, how how did they um, uh, take your your unorthodox way yeah, of doing things? Trish, you wanted me to be myself, but the guys I wrestling didn't want me to. They wanted me to wrestle hand to hand, you know, chain wrestling, not, not the table and chair. But Trish, you wanted me to do my stuff. So mm-hmm. It was kind of difficult getting to them when the guys are resisting. Who, who was it that you worked with around that time? Uh, that faggot Otani. Another faggot, Kanemoto. Kanemoto. <laughs> Liger was great about it. Those two assholes were assholes. Well, you know, it's funny because um, the first time I went to, to New Japan was under a mask at the Tokyo Dome. As I was called wow. Super Liger. It was kind of like Liger's opposite rival. And I worked with right. Kanemoto, and that he was not uh, he was not receptive to anything I wanted to do in the match. Was the, was the sh- I, I I never really understood why either. You know, I didn't get it because, like you said, a Liger, guys like Ultimo Dragon, the guys that were on top were always very receptive to newer guys coming in. They wanted newer guys to come in, but those guys weren't that way, right? You know, because I could see Liger getting your style because Liger was was, was unorthodox in his own way as well. He always did his own thing and um, you know kind of did it his his way. Ah, the sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Talk is Jericho. On the line with Sabu. Now, when you were in ECW, did you ever consider working for WWE at that time? Uh, did you have any goals or ideas or aspirations of going there? No, I, I, I had um, JJ Dillon call me in for a tryout uh, yeah. while I was in ECW and New Japan, and I didn't know what a tryout was. 
And I said, does it pay? And he goes, yeah, it pays. I said, no, I'll, I'll be there. So I had three tryout matches, you know, quote, unquote. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, they were just payday. And then afterwards, Vince had a talk with me, and uh, he, he, he said, uh, would you like to join the team? And I said, no. And he goes, then why are you here? I said, I'm here for the payoff. And he goes, uh, uh, <laughs> he couldn't believe that I didn't want to work there. It wasn't that I didn't want to work there. I wasn't interested. I already had a job. So uh, you had no uh, goals of going to the WWE. You just took it for the payday. That's great. Yeah, I just thought it was, they, they just wanted you know a hired hand. Why did you not want to go to WWE? Because I was happy doing what I was, what I was doing. You know, Japan yeah. and ECW. Well, you did go to WCW for for a short period of time in the in the mid nineties, though, too, right? Right. Yes. What, what was this like? I mean, that must have really been a a crazy experience for you because that company was nuts, man. I remember I got there in 96. I don't know what year you were there at, but I mean, it was talk about being restricted. Yeah. Um, they, they wanted me to remain a junior heavyweight. That's why I quit. Cause it was almost, uh, it was almost like a, a, a detrimental term there. If you were a junior heavyweight, it was almost having like leprosy or something. Yeah. You, you would never be main event. And I wanted to be main event, not all the time, but sometime. And they said, no, we're going to use you as a junior. But they change it to a cruiserweight. That's the same thing, you know. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. It's even, it's even kind of worse. Cruiserweight sounds sounds almost as bad yeah. as junior. Did, 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 but when you went there, did you sign a deal with them, or was it once again just for a couple paydays? No. Um, they wanted me to sign a deal. How what went was uh, Kevin Sullivan called me and said, "How much would it cost to to do our first Monday Nitro?" And I said, "Well, I'm booked in Japan. I can't." He goes, "How much would it cost to do our second Monday Nitro?" And I said, uh, "Give me give me five hundred bucks." You know, I figured just so he could look at me. Right. So he did. Uh, and then afterwards, they assumed I only wanted $500 a match after that, and they gave me a contract that said one pay-per-view a month and one Monday month, which means I made $1,000 a month. And I said, no way. So I quit. <laughs> and I, I never signed nothing, you know. Yeah. I love that, though, right? Like, the, they used to do that with guys like you and me. would go for the real low ball offers and then you'd find out that like you know stevie ray was making 850 grand a year or something like that Uh, (laughs) (laughs) well um and so so at this point in time too ecw was really making a run for you know kind of it was to get on the on the big stage there was monthly pay-per-views and there was you know tv was brewing um who did you like to work when you were in ecw well i'd be cheating if i said rob van dam but besides him um, uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I hate to say this, <laughs> Sandman was all right. You know, if he was drunk, he was good to work. <laughs> if he was, he was drunk, sober, he was good yeah. to work. Yeah. If he, if he was sober, he sucked really bad. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and actually I like wrestling Taz too. I just didn't like him personally. Oh, okay. So first of all, I got two questions to ask you about that. Now, no, how I mean I've I you know as far as I know I'm sure there's been a couple guys that were a little bit buzzed but I've never worked with someone that's drunk. How, how could you trust him if he, if Sandman was drunk? Well, um, because he did everything sloppy and uh, sober or drunk. So so if he was drunk, that that helped tell the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and he was better drunk. He could remember everything, and he was better drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's like uh, they used to say that Eddie Van Halen played every show in the 80s completely drunk, so maybe some guys are just better when they're inebriated, right? I guess so. 
So was there ever any time when Sandman was so drunk that he just like passed out during the match or something? Uh, not during my matches, but it has happened before, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Only in ECW, right? Right. Anywhere else he would have been fired. Now, when you mentioned Taz, you said you liked working with him, but you didn't like him personally. But did that ever affect kind of your judgment within the ring, or were you able to kind of separate the two? Uh, I, I thought we, we separated the two. Mm. You know, he, always thought, he always thought, uh you're taking three bumps, I'm taking one bump. Uh, it's not fair, you know, or something like that. Right. And I, and I was trying to put together a match, you know, have a match. He, he kind of took a personal something. Well, I mean, there's a lot of guys in ECW that, um, I mean, Paulie's one of his, his genius strengths was that he could exemplify guys' strengths and kind of hide their weaknesses. Um, and there was a lot of guys. I mean, Taz was one of them, Public Enemy, Sandman, because when all those guys left to go to the quote-unquote the big leagues, they were kind of exposed, you know? Right. Did you, did you kind of know, like, for example, like Public Enemy, did you, did you feel like when they left that they would be able to make it in, in, the, in the big leagues? Or did you kind of think, wow, these guys are going to be really in for a rude awakening when they leave here? Uh, I, I, I thought they'd be, uh, you know, uh, fall on their face. Really? Because they, they sucked, both of them. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, love, I loved them, too, in the dressing room. Their, their ring work sucked. Yeah, and I, and I agree. I mean, that's the thing, too. A lot of people, that's one thing I've always loved about you is you're very, uh, you're very honest in your assessments. And yes, they both were very, very good guys in the dressing room. But that doesn't mean they were fun to work in the ring. There was a lot of guys that just right. didn't have, you know, that extra. I remember, uh, you know, Taz was the same when he went to WWE. He was he was really exposed in a lot of ways, uh, and I don't think he knew how to handle it because he was always Paulie's like assassin in in right. uh, in ECW. You know. Yep. So I mean, let's talk about uh, some of the the famous matches that you had in ECW. I mean, there's a lot of barbed wire matches there as well. One of them. No, that, no, 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 no. I only done one barbed wire match. Well, I mean, the, the, the one I'm talking about is with Terry Funk. Yeah, that's the only one I ever did. Sorry, that's that's the one I was referring to. I didn't know it was the only okay. one that you ever did, but that one was kind of an infamous, one of the most uh, you know legendary bloody matches of all time. Tell us uh, about that because you got some. You still have the the deep scars to this day from that. Yeah, um, I I actually uh, cut my bicep in half from it. Wow! During the match. Yeah. So, t- t- so what was the concept of the match? It was a no-rope barbed wire match. They replaced the ropes with just pure barbed wire. Right, like FMW style. Right, exactly. And Terry had also worked quite a bit over in Japan in, in the kind of the hardcore leagues as well. So, yes. So, what, and, you know, t- tell us about uh, about you know putting together this match. Did you guys know that it was going to be as dangerous as it was? What was your mindset? No, no we didn't think it was going to be as dangerous as it was. We, we took it like another match, you know. The uh, Terry's funny, you know. Uh, it's just another match to him to get through it without getting killed, and and we, and we both did. We didn't get killed. <laughs> <laughs> and the, and the finish was an accident when we got stuck in the ball of barbed wire. Uh, that was an accident. Uh, you know, I I couldn't cover him. He couldn't cover me. We couldn't move. So he got stuck. You know. <laughs> yeah, I think if I can remember, is that Terry was in the corner and you you jumped off maybe off the chair to do the corner splash, and you kind of both got stuck like in a spider's web. Right, yeah, kind of like that, yeah. And you couldn't get out, right? And is that how you tore your biceps from that? Well, from that bump there, yeah. Wow, man. So how how did you get out? Uh, after the match, they cut us out. <laughs> wow. Now I remember a couple times to see like during matches when you were cut, you would tape yourself up with ringside tape. Um, I remember one time, yeah, well, right, right after I hurt my bicep that time, 
I had Fonzie run to the dressing room and bring me back tape because um, the cut was so deep, it wasn't bleeding out of my cut. It was pouring on my vein. So I had to uh, cut the circulation off in my left arm. Now, this, it's not exactly a medically uh, uh, correct procedure, I'll say. Well, did you end up? What you gotta do. Did you end up going to the hospital for that? Yeah, uh, yes and no. I did. Uh, the, the, I got one of the guys sold me up in the dressing room, uh, and then I went to the hospital like a week later. Wow. Okay. Now, you, I remember other times too. I saw you. Um, Closing cuts with super glue. Yeah, and is, is that some? I'd never seen that before. Is that a, a Sabu invention as well? No, no, no. Um, in World War One and World War Two, they used to use it to close wounds fast, and so they got to a mass unit to do it correctly. Uh, it uh, stop the bleeding fast. So you remembered from that. So is it something you would do during a match, or would you would you do it after the match? No, I would do it after a match. Wow, man. And it's just you know it's 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 funny because you know, and this is what ECW was like, and even WWE when I first started there, there was no trainer, you know. So if you got cut open, uh, you would have to go sit in the emergency room for you know three, four, five hours at three a.m. Right. on a Saturday night in Louisville, Kentucky. Not exactly the best atmosphere. So you kind of uh, just jumped that, and, and it would stitch yourself up, basically. Yes, <laughs> smart move, man. Super glue, super glue and tape. Now, how, how was? Uh, what was your because you, you left ECW before ECW closed down? Is that right? Yes. Was it just enough at that point in time, or what was your reasons for that? Uh, I didn't get paid for three months, uh, and I didn't get no royalties for seven years. And WCW offered me an unbelievable contract, and uh, and then when when I JJ Dillon comes up and gave me this huge contract, and I and I said, uh, let me take it to my hotel room and, and read it, and they go, just sign it. I said, let me take it to my hotel room and read it. What I wanted to do was tell my mother. So when I got my mother on the phone, my dogs were barking, and there's someone at the door, and my mother had a heart attack, so I never got a chance to tell her that. I did eventually, but she had a heart attack. So I hung up the phone, called my brother, said, Mom's having a heart attack, and he got over there, and I flew home from Atlanta, from Atlanta to Michigan, got home. Uh, she was in intensive care, and then I called back Kevin Sullivan, and said, okay, I'm ready to sign that contract. And he goes, too late. We're already being sued by uh, Paulie. Really? So, so, so for that, um, Paulie does have a, a death, uh, something bad going to happen to him. He's got something happen. Is something that's going to happen to him. Something bad's going to happen to him. Not by me. By his karma. By his karma. Yeah. How is your relationship with Paul nowadays? Is is that not good because of that reason? No, uh, I don't have a relationship with him. I don't talk to him. I don't have a relationship with him. It's not because of that. I just don't talk to him. Because at the time, you guys worked together fairly closely because you were one of his, his big big guns. Yeah, but um, you know what he would do? No more direction. He'd say, he'd say, Sabu Claire, bring four matches. Do something amazing. That That's his direction. I said, uh, okay. <laughs> no, not give me nothing, no more than that. You know, it, was, it wasn't like people think, and so does he, thinks he created me. Or made this monster. He didn't. He absolutely did nothing other than gave me a ring to do it in. Oh, interesting point. Yeah, he gave you the canvas to paint your your pictures on. Because yeah, because yeah, you were an established you were established name at least amongst the hardcores. And most of what you were doing in ECW, you're right. I, I'd seen you doing it years before in uh, in FMW for sure. Right, but but uh, people think and so does he 
think that he, he actually told me specific things to do. Mm-hmm. He, he gave me no direction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do know for sure. Not that, not that, not that I would have took it from him anyway. <laughs> but he gave me no direction anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I liked when you mentioned that you didn't get royalties because I remember you and I had one match. Uh, it was probably back in about '95. It was, uh, I think, it was in the Lulu Temple. I don't know where yes. that. I just remember Lulu yeah. Temple, and it's the only match you and I ever had. But Paulie sold that tape uh, when they used to sell tapes. I guess maybe right. before DVDs. Every week on his show until ECW closed in like 2001 or two, there was an ad every week for the yeah. the only Jericho Sabu match ever. And I didn't see any royalties from that. Did you? No, he, uh, he, he was paying me like $700 a match, and, but I said I needed more or I, I, I can't come back here because uh-huh. it was only one or two days a month. The rest of my time was in Japan. Then he goes, I'll give you 7% of everybody's royalties, uh, ECW, Taz's, Dreamers, everybody. I got 7% of everybody's royalties. Never got a dime. Well, he was going to give you 7% of every royalty in ECW? Yes, that's his promise. Wow, to try and keep I you never there. Never got a dime. Never got a penny. Wow. And then, of course, due to the unfortunate uh, circumstance with your mother, then you didn't sign the WCW contract, but you only quit ECW. So what did you do after that at that point? Did you go back to the Indies? Because you worked in TNA for a while, too. Yeah, I, I was always in the Indies anyways. Even though I was in ECW, I still did the Indies. Mm-hmm. There was nothing, though. You know. But, uh, yeah, I, I just floated around like I always did. Right, right, right. Now, after all the years of working, I know you spent some time in TNA, and, and um, you know, I'm sure that was okay. But after yeah, I worked with them on and off for 10 years. Okay. Now, how, how did you like working for them? How was that as a company? Uh, I liked it. They, they, they kind of let me be myself, too, up until um, the last time I was there, two, two or three years ago, where uh, Bischoff was there. Oh, what would you when think? Bischoff came in, uh, it, it was a shit. In what way? He didn't, they were saying, you have to do this, you have to do that, you can't do this, you can't do that. Because before, I would do something, and they go, okay, you can't do that again. But, but I wouldn't ask nobody. But they came to me, he could send some, somebody to me, specifically say, you can't break a table tonight. You can't use a chair tonight. You can't be yourself tonight, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, which is, and, you know, it's, one, it's one of those things, that, then why would they bring you in in the first place? They know who Sabu is, they know what you do. So why try and mess with it? Well, because he's an ass. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> you know him. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I, know I know it, man. I kind of threw you the softball on that one. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but, but, I mean, what I, I guess what I was getting at is, is you mentioned years earlier about not wanting to go to WWE and, and just showing up for payoffs and all that sort of thing. And then finally, you ended up going to WWE. Uh, which was, I thought it was like, I thought it was one of the things I never thought I'd see, Sabu and the WWE. How, how was your experiences there? Did you come in as part of the ECW uh, uh, invasion that they had in the WWE? Kind of. Um, Johnny Ace and uh, those Johnny Ace, he called me and said, Vince wants you to be you. We want you like you were at ECW. We want you to change. Don't want you to change or nothing. When I got there, it was fine for like two months. They wanted me to talk. They didn't stop breaking tables and stop using chairs and talk and, and not be myself. And it got so frustrating. Uh, it was a kind of quit fire thing. Yeah, because you that was one of the, the angles of your career is that you never spoke, right? Right. Or, or rarely right. spoke. H- had you ever spoken before you got to WWE? Uh, not really. 
uh, it was, it's not because I, I refuse to. It's because I'm no good at it. I, I know my strong points and my weak points. My weak point is talking. Yeah. So, so I rather not stay away from that. You know? Well, you always did your talking in the ring, and, and you had some very cool mannerisms. I mean, I loved you know pointing at the sky, and you know the, just the look that you had in your face. You looked like a lunatic when you were in the ring, and when you were backstage, in, in a good way. I mean, that was kind of part of the mystique of Sabu. <laughs> right. <laughs> but then, I mean, it was it was good too because they had, they put you with Fonzie. That was a great pairing. With Fonzie could talk for you, even though you couldn't really right. understand what Fonzie was saying half the time. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, so they made you talk. Were they giving you, uh, you know, scripts that the writers were, were? They gave me scripts. They gave me two, three page scripts, and I said, I can't do this. It, for one, uh, I can't remember two or three pages, and two, they're not words I would normally say. Right. That, that's the worst thing when, when when the writers would come in sometimes and give you words. Like, I would never say this. I mean, this is so obviously somebody else's voice, and if you don't believe it and you can't commit to it, you won't be able right. to get it over. Exactly. Uh, how were some of the matches? I mean, you got a chance to work. There was a couple like uh, dream matches that you had. I know you got to work, at least for the fans, you got to work with Rey Mysterio. Was, and was that the, yeah. pro- probably a first, right? Yeah, I loved that. It must have been great. And then also, too, you worked you worked with Cena even on a pay-per-view. Yeah, and, and I enjoyed that, too. I enjoyed wrestling the Big Show. Big Show was fun. Big Show, well, actually... Cena as well. Both those guys are underrated as actual workers. Right. I, th- I think Big Show is one of the best big men that's ever worked, but people kind of yeah. don't think that because he's so big. Right, but but I, I give I give him all the credit in the world. He is a good worker, and I always had good matches with him. I agree. I agree. I think he knew exactly how to use his size and to sell when when he had to, and you know knew how to to really you know beat your ass too, especially for guys our size. You know he he right. he, he would do it very believably, which I think he gets underrated for. Um, yep. And I think Cena, too. I mean, Cena gets a bad rap. You know, he even makes jokes of the five moves of doom, this and other thing. I think Cena's a, a, a really good worker. Good. What's that? I thought he's a good worker. The moves he does do, he does them good. Same with The Rock. He, he does nothing that special other than talk. But what he does, he does good. Yeah. And that's and that's all that matters. You know what I mean? As long as whatever you do is good, then, then you know, you can always have good matches. It's, if you try and go outside of your of your box that you kind of run into problems sometimes. Right. And see, outside of my box would be talking, and then if I was to talk, and they'll say, "Oh, he sucks. He won't. He won't shut up." Yeah, so. right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Did you work uh, a lot with Punk in in that ECW uh, time? No, uh, no, I uh, um, I rode with him, but I never got to work. I worked with him one time for Ian Rotten okay. years ago, uh, but I, I rode with him, but I never got to work with him. Never in the WWE. Uh, did no. you have, Did you have a lot of interactions with Vince during your time there? No, not very much. Yeah. Did you ever? Uh, yeah, because he's he's uh, he's he's kind of an interesting guy to talk to as well. Well, uh, one one someone gave me some advice saying uh, you got to build a personal relationship with Vince. Mm-hmm. I said, what for? I said, I'm I don't have to know my boss to work hard for him and work good for him. All I got to do is do my job and him shake my hand at the end of the night. That's enough. Right. You know? Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. But I I don't have to be his buddy, and I I didn't want to be his buddy. You know. Well, I mean, that's kind of the wrestling way, too. A lot of guys are like that because they want to get in there as kind of a, you know, a brown nose, butt-kissing kind of uh, situation as well. Well, that, that that wasn't me. That just wasn't me. Yeah, well, nor has it ever been, nor has it ever been. You know, we had, uh, we had uh, I spoke to, to Van Dam a few months ago, and we were talking about the night when you guys got busted and got arrested. Uh, how, how much was that, a, did that hurt your career in the WWE at all, did you think, when you guys got pulled over by the cops? Uh... 
No, but it hurts. It hurt Rob's. Yeah. You know, the belt off and all that. Uh, I wasn't going nowhere anyways because I was already on the list. Because you didn't want to talk? Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. So you took your leave of WWE, and then it was kind of back to, to the indies and all that sort of stuff. Um, and that leads you to where you're working now. I mean, how much do you work? How How, how is your body feeling? Uh, my body's pretty banged up, but but it's still holding up. And I, and I work almost every weekend, two, three matches. Just wherever you want. You work as much as you want to work then? Yeah. Do you still um, feel the need to do as much of your classic Sabu, you know, moves? Or do you... No, no, like the legend is bigger than the actual guy, you know? Yeah. So well, if I do a couple moves and do them well, uh, they appreciate it. What was the hardest move that, that, that you did? I mean, you did some really, really like, Spider-Man type stuff. And I could never, you know, never believe that you were able to do it all the time because you need a lot of stuff off the ropes, and sometimes the ropes are loose. You know, you don't right. get the bounce. That it was there one move that you kind of always were thinking, like, I hope this goes right. Just about all of them. <laughs> I swear, I, I say, man, this isn't going to go, and then uh, boom, I'd hit it, or boom, I'd miss it. You know. Yeah, and and you never really, it never phased you either way, and it almost became part of your gimmick. Like if you if if it didn't work, it was like because you're you know the homicidal suicidal guy. It didn't. It wasn't like people were chanting, you know, you for anything like that. You know, it was more like Sabu tried and it didn't work because because of the circumstances surrounding you. Right. You know? I, I very rarely got any uh, youth up chants. It was mostly ooh. Yeah. Uh, I think because they respected the fact that you, I remember the one that we always to me was always. I think we even did it in our match. Was I think you called it the triple jump where you would maybe the double jump. I don't. You jump off the chair onto the top rope and then moonsault back. Yeah, triple jump. Triple jump. And that one was the one that I could never, like, how you could even land on the top rope and then push off. When you did it, it looked amazing. But it was always such a risk factor because even just, you know, did you have to practice it a lot to get to, to know exactly where to put the chair, for example? Uh, Not a whole lot, but, but yeah, I did practice it before I, I showed it. I uh, did in front of people. I did practice I used to have like a, a bag of laundry, a bag of dirty laundry that I would practice moon salts on <laughs> in Mexico. Yeah. Actually, I had a mattress folded in half as a dummy. Okay, there you go, right? Yeah, you have to have some kind of a target. Absolutely. Right. After all the years, uh, Sabu, is there is there a couple matches that stand out for you as being the, some of your favorites that you've had? Not really. You know, I, I, I still got more life in me. I'm hoping the, my best match I haven't had yet. Is is, is is how about the memorable ones? I mean, the, the Terry Funk one does that stand out, or some of the ones that you had? Uh, yeah, yeah, because it's brought up to me so much. To, at the time, it was just another match, but uh, yeah, that was one of my better matches, that, or you know, more proud of matches. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, well, it's it's legendary, like you said, just for you know the the carnage and the fighting spirit that you had. Did, did you like working with Terry? Oh, I loved it. I loved it. Yeah, I mean, he was he, he was he was great. He was one of the guys that, even though he was older, he still had a young mentality and always yeah. wanted to kind of push the envelope of, of what he could do. He never said no to a bump or a high spot. Never. Really? Not to me. Never. Wow. He never said no to me for anything. Wow. And that, like you said, you're talking he, about... He, the... he would just say, explain that again. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure I get it right, Sabu. Say it again, please. <laughs> exactly. Who else stands out as guys that you really like to work with? I know we talked about earlier in ECW, but what about for, for all the companies that you worked in? Well, uh, one guy, he's not around no more, Lucifer Coley. He was a, he was a great guy. Wow. I always liked, I always liked working him. 
he's an underrated guy. You know, he never very, very. You know, he passed away so early in his career, but uh, as a performer, he he never really got a lot of steam because, like you said, he never really got a chance to show what he could do. But but, but I knew what he could do in uh, my matches with him. I, I remember every second of him. Really, yeah, because he was a bigger yeah. guy. You know, he was like uh, very agile because he was. I guess I won't even say he was chubby, but he just had that kind of build. But he could still right. work really, really well. He's a great worker. Super nice guy too. I remember Louis, uh, always, always a friendly guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. Well, Sabu, it's it's been great to talk to you, man. And, and like I said, uh, it's it's great that you're still working. You work as much as you want to all around the world. Uh, is, do you have a website that we can check all your all your uh, dates on? No, I got a Facebook. I don't have a website. All right, all right. Facebook is just Sabu. Uh, four Sabus in a row. Four Sabus in a row. Sabu, Sabu, yeah. Sabu, Sabu. Because <laughs> you know why? That's how my uncle used to call, used to call me. Sabu, 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 Sabu. Well, man, it's great talking to you. You sound great, and uh, I'm glad we got a chance to catch up, man. Thank you very much. Thanks, dude. You got it. Hey, I want to say thanks to Sabu. Very, very cool to have him on the show. His first podcast interview ever, maybe his only podcast interview. He's never been known for his talking, and he finally broke the silence and gave us some great stories. Thanks to all of you for listening, uh, as always. And thanks to all of you for checking out my new book, The Best in the World, at what? I have no idea. Have you, have you read it yet? Have you bought it yet? If you haven't, uh, there's some great, great stories in there from... Uh, my three tours of Iraq being stranded in an unsecured war zone uh, with Taliban snipers uh, in the area. My feuds with Shawn Michaels and CM Punk and Rey Mysterio reinventing my character to become the most hated man in the business. Dancing with the Stars, the resurrection of Fozzie, hosting the Golden Gods, having Joe Perry call me a douche, uh, learning the paleo diet from James Hetfield, getting knocked out by Mike Tyson. So many, many great stories. Uh, I also do a thing where I talk about all of my uh, ring songs and the origin behind them. I'm going to read it to you right now. Chapter 19 is called The Twanging Koto. All right. One of the most integral components of a pro wrestler's ring entrance is his or her accompanying music. Sets the tone of the character, and from the first note, the fans should know exactly what to expect, whether it's the breaking glass of Stone Cold Steve Austin, the tolling funeral bell of The Undertaker, or the twanging koto of Funaki, Ring music is the most important way to alert the fans as to what kind of a performer they're about to see. Being a music fanatic, I've always given a lot of thought to what song was going to herald my arrival to the ring. I perform with a lot of energy, and I always want my ring music to reflect that. If I had the right song, I felt like I could kick the world's ass. But if I had the wrong song, it was like trying to bang Asa Akira with a case of the shrinkage. Fortunately, I wasn't in control of my ring music a lot of the times, and some of my choices made me feel like George Costanza in the Hamptons. All right. The following is along of every song I've entered the ring to, some of them classics, some of them okay, and some of them just plain Johnny Rotten. Unskinny Bop, Poison. This is the song I used for the first dozen or so matches of my career about a week after I arrived in Calgary to start my training. Poison's new album, Flesh and Bud, was released, and I loved it. I was always more of a made Metallica-type guy, but I had a soft spot for some of the better hair metal bands, and Poison was one of them. I liked the groove of Unskinny Bop, especially the drums, bass, intro, and thought it would be a good representation of the swagger I was showing at the time. I stopped using after it inexplicably started playing backwards during my entrance one night in Strathmore, Alberta. Instead of the bass drum intro, I came down the aisle to the sound of a weird echoey loops and a backwards slow voice saying, I buried Paul. Tease me, please me, Scorpions. I'm a big believer that an entrance song needed to have some sort of intro. A few bars of instrumentation that would build the anticipation of the big reveal. 
the song had that. And I remember on numerous occasions, a nervous community center stagehand trying to push me through the curtain saying, go, go, while I dug in my heels saying, it's not time yet. Overnight sensation Firehouse, Lance Storm and I used this on our first tour of Japan in 1999 when I decided our team's sudden impact needed something heavy to hit the ring to. I have no idea why I settled on Firehouse as they weren't exactly Venom, but the song started with a heavy riff that led to a long high scream, which was our cue to run up from our backstage, slamming and jamming all the way. I accidentally left the Firehouse cassette with the FMW sound guy at the end of the tour and forced the bus driver to go back to the arena to retrieve it. We almost missed our flight home and everyone was pissed at me, but I didn't care. No cassette is left behind, damn it. Silent Jealousy, ex-Japan. When I made my grand return to Japan in 1992, I had these delusions that the fans were going to go crazy to see me. I figured since they've been waiting for my return for so long, less than a year, Jericho Mania would be running wild. I wanted to give them something special to let them know I'd miss them just as much, so I figured if I came to the ring to the biggest Japanese metal band of all time, it would ingratiate me to the culture, and I'd love be loved even more, right? Wrong. The song played to veritable silence as I ran to the ring before an apathetic crowd. When I jumped to the second rope and screamed, Watashi wa modeta kaita, I'm back. Nobody gave a shih tzu. You're invited, but your friend can't come, Vince Neil. I made my first highlight reel of this song from the soundtrack of Encino Man, Sweet Parley Shore, Where Are You Now? By assembling the highest flying moves in my repertoire to the driving beat of the tomb. Should I post on YouTube? Hit me up on the Twitter at I am Jericho or at Talk is Jericho and let me know. The heavy ass riff, fruit singing, and total guitar wizardry from Steve Stevens made this the perfect, albeit slightly out of fashion, thanks to the onslaught of grunge, ring song for me at the time. Rock America, Danger, Danger, another song that I had no involvement in choosing, and my least favorite ring song of all time. Jim Cornette picked this squeaky clean tune to represent his squeaky clean new babyface team, the Thrill Seekers, and it couldn't have been cheesier if it came in a bag of Cheetos. Super polished with a horrible acapella early 90s vocal intro, followed by a keyboard-heavy pop metal hook. It was the exact opposite of what was happening musically at the time and the image I wanted to portray. I felt like a right wanker whenever the song started and wanted to hide when it played, which was the exact opposite of what I needed from an entrance song. But Cornette loved it and wouldn't consider changing it. While I like a lot of other songs by Danger Danger, this one was just shit. Electric Head Part 2, White Zombie. This tune worked even better as I started with a sample of some BMF proclaiming I just said, up yours, baby, which was the perfect slogan for my attitude at the time. I wanted to use it when I moved to WCW, but unless you were Hulk Hogan, apparently the company bought the rights for his voodoo child music from Hendrix's estate for $100,000. I was told they couldn't use outside music. Break the Walls Down, Jim Johnson. Not only is this my most famous entrance theme, it's also the best one I've ever had. Perfect vibe and feeling for who I am as a performer. With the classic opening line, Break the Walls Down, to let people know exactly what's up. I've used it since my 1999 WWE debut, and I can't imagine coming to the ring to anything else, even though I've been forced to use a few different variations since. Break the Walls Down, Zach Wild. I asked Zach to redo this song prior to my 2007 return, and he worked hard to create a suitable remake. I really dug this version, but sadly, Vince did not. I still have this on my iPod, but since I only listen to music on my iPhone nowadays, I never hear it. Maybe I should put this one up on YouTube as well. Nightmare Avenged Sevenfold. When I pinched to Vince the idea to come back in the beginning of 2012 with the end of the world promos, I wanted to once again change my character and my music. I thought the intro of this song with some editing 
would be perfect for the tone I was trying to set with the creepy vignettes and the evil warnings of my arrival. I spoke to the singer M. Shadows about it. He was totally down with the idea, but Vince wasn't. Vince said my original ring song was evergreen and would would be my WWE entrance music until the day I left the company. In retrospect, I know he was right. There's a little bit of an abridged version. There's a lot of uh, other ring songs. So go check out that book and read it when you can. Uh, I know that if you're a Jericho fan, you're going to love it. Just like I know if you're a Jericho fan, you enjoy listening to Talk is Jericho. And I appreciate you guys downloading this show twice a week. And I appreciate you checking out my sexy beast sponsors who help us pay for the production costs of doing this for you for free for twice a week and if you want to help support the show the easiest way to do that is to do your online shopping through my amazon links they're easy to find just go to podcastone.com click on the keep our podcasts free banner at the top of the page then click on talk is jericho you see all three of my amazon links in the uk the usa and canada a Every time you do that, Amazon kicks back a little cash to the show so we can keep doing this for you for free for twice a week. No extra fees, no hidden charges. You're just getting your shopping done and you're helping me out in the process. All right, that was great. Another amazing episode of Talk is Jericho. That's it. In the meantime and in between time, stay hard, stay hungry. Peace, love, and hugs. We'll see you next week for the Talk is Jericho Halloween Spooktacular. I got a couple of very, very creepy, scary guests lined up. Come for the horror fix and stay for the things that go bump in the night. Yeah, boy. Don't you dare miss it. We'll see you next week. You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com. 